Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Richard Serrett sitting in for George Norrie, an investigative historian, avocational archaeologist, and author. Jason Jarrell is with me. Ages of the Giants, a cultural history of the tall ones in prehistoric America, uh, which he co-authored with Sarah Farmer. Now, uh, where did giants fit in with Native American cosmology? Did Did the giants... Uh, did they arrive in North America before uh, Native Americans, or were, did they coexist? Tell me about that. Well, uh, to begin with, uh, they were a recurring element in the general prehistoric population of North America that goes back to the original founding groups who entered the continent from Eurasia at least 20,000 years ago. Uh, they were not... Uh, guaranteed any type of status or leadership positions by virtue of their unique physicality. This is testified by the fact that while they're found in group burials, just carelessly dumped into a pit in some of the ancient tombs, uh, in other tombs they are found with exotic goods, which suggests that some of them had leadership positions. Uh, But, in fact, they were actually a part of the base population And they actually continued up to historic times when they were documented among the existing Native American tribes. And you do uh, a lot of work investigating mounds uh, up and down the Ohio Valley. Were these burial mounds uh, used to entomb these giants, or were they used for non-giants as well, members of the non-giant population? Well, most of the population was made up of people without the unique physicality. Uh, The the burial mounds, which form the primary focus of my research, are of the Adena and Hopewell mound-building cultures in the Ohio Valley. Uh, Together, these cultures date to between 500 B.C. and roughly 500 A.D., And the burial mounds of these two cultures, these earthwork-building cultures in the Ohio Valley, have been found to contain more unusually large skeletons than the tombs of any other ancient culture from anywhere else in the history of the world. Now, the burial mounds themselves were built to contain the remains of local community members, and in some instances, individuals from multiple regional communities. And um, they, they were built for the entire population. The reason that the tall ones and the large skeletons are so famously known from these mounds is because the cultures themselves are so famous and exotic. But one of the things we found in researching Ages of the Giants was that these remains are actually found in all of the cultures going back to the archaic period here in the eastern woodlands and the Great Lakes region of the United States. And people with this unique physicality were born into the historic period. In fact, many of the old press articles that describe large skeletons from burial mounds that have been promoted as ancient giants uh, are actually burials that were made in mounds that were very recent, some of them after European contact, because the remains are found with Spanish trade goods in some instances. Uh, so 
essentially they they're part of the population that constructed the exotic mound builder cultures but they are also a part of all of the other ancient cultures from this part of the country they are in the ancestry of the algonquian the, the sioux the cherokee the iroquois the caddo pawnee the creeks and other indigenous peoples uh, from the eastern united states now, we're not talking about, you know, 12-foot giants or anything ex- extraordinary like that. We're talking about what, on the order of seven foot, seven and a half feet? Well, that's, that's a, a really excellent point, and that's why I refer to them myself as the tall ones. Uh, it's not only a much more appropriate descriptive term, but it is also the term which was used for them by the tribal elders consulted by the great Native American scholar Vine Deloria, uh, who published about this in his book Red Earth, White Lies in 1997. Uh, The actual reports of archaeologists that acknowledge the large remains going back to the excavations of the Smithsonian in the 1880s are describing uh, people who range between seven and eight feet in height with very powerful musculature as evidenced by the attachments which are detectable and observable on the bones, Uh, very thick skulls who practiced artificial cranial deformation. Uh, Their facial skeleton was also very pronounced and powerful. They had large brow ridges, but it's been well known uh, since the mid-20th century that these people did not have any type of disease that caused these traits. They were studied by numerous physical anthropologists from Ohio and Illinois and other places, these bones. So there was a genetic component to this. It just happens to be a very widespread genetic component. So why the controversy? Why, for example, do we not see the remains of these tall ones in the Smithsonian or other museums, why, as some researchers claim, has it been suppressed? Well, first of all, you're not seeing remains because the burial law and the laws regarding the respect for Native American human remains uh, at this point strongly discourages the display of any remains from uh, prehistoric tombs that, that are in the ancestry of Native Americans. But in terms of the policy of denial... Uh, the reason why uh, this subject became blacklisted in the first place really has nothing to do with modern archaeology whatsoever. It goes back to the beginning of the 20th century when eugenicists and scientific racialists took over the hierarchy of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian, and uh, a man named Elise Herdlichka initiated a policy of denial by which the Smithsonian would refuse to acknowledge the large skeletons in their own reports. And the reason for this was that at that time, the American Eugenics Society had targeted Native Americans in the United States for complete extermination. And they believed that the existence of these anthropologically superior people in Native American ancestry would contradict their own racist dogmas. So, in other words, the tall ones uh, had physical characteristics which were, just based on their size, 
superior in that way. That's what you're referring to. Their their, yes, their physicality because, didn't fit right. the the narrative. Didn't fit mm-hmm. the narrative of European superiority. Yes, what people need to understand is that the eugenics movement worldwide in the late 1800s and early 1900s based a person's genetic quality solely on the types of bones their ancestors left behind. If you go and research the writings of all the major eugenicists, including American eugenicists such as Madison Grant or the English eugenicist Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who inspired Hitler, you'll find that all of them referred back to the massive stature of their own ancestors as evidence of their Aryan supremacy. So here in Native America, we had a competing gene pool of uh, very large individuals recorded in the Smithsonian's own reports, uh, and it was very well known up to the point that the policy of denial was instituted. Well, that explains the suppression let's say, 100 years ago, 60 mm-hmm. years ago, maybe even 50 years ago. But why, are, why is, are, is the existence uh, of these tall ones still being suppressed in 2019? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for it. First of all, the, it's, important, it's important that we reflect on the field of research as a whole. Um, this information was largely forgotten until just several decades ago, And immediately, there were all sorts of sensational ideas and topics attached to it by people who started investigating it and sort of rediscovering it. And this probably caused a knee-jerk reaction among uh, mainstream archaeologists and anthropologists, and in some ways I can understand why. Uh, But in terms of simply acknowledging that they exist, I believe that that is actually going to happen, and I don't believe it's going to be very long before it does. Uh, there are simply too many of, of the large skeletons on record. Uh, we know of at least three places where they're still being stored, none of which is the Smithsonian. Uh, so if there are any enterprising anthropologists out there that would like to double-check this mystery, uh, I can actually help you to do it by pointing you in the right direction. How would they get a hold of you, Jason? Uh, you can reach me on Facebook, uh, Jason Gerald, or you can come to ParadigmCollision.com, which is our website, and contact me through that. And again, uh, Gerald is J-A-R-R-E-L-L, Jason Gerald. You can find him on Facebook or the website ParadigmCollision.com. Uh, we're going to break at the bottom of the hour here. We'll take some calls after the break. Before that, though, I'd like to circle back into some, Amer- uh, some Native American legends and myths. And uh, we have to talk about the skinwalkers. Uh, where do these shapeshifters fit into Native American cosmology? Well, um, in terms of shapeshifters, I-, I would really like for people to understand that shapeshifting at least in this part of the country, in the Northeast, uh, as, as a Native American belief, it's attached literally to everything. You know, the cosmos was fluid and continuous. It's apparent by reading the Native American oral traditions as they were documented by the ethnographers in the 1800s. Uh, that shape-shifting was a power attributed to any being with spiritual abilities, including human beings. If we go back to the earliest cultures, uh, we see that the three realms of the Native American cosmos are connected by a sacred tree or a great mountain. 
referred to as an axis mundi. Uh, the shamans in this layered cosmos, going back at least 3,000 years, the role of the shaman is to travel to the worlds above and below, usually aided by altered states of consciousness. And in order to do so, they would wear the regalia or the bones of certain types of animals, because it was believed that by doing so, they could adopt certain aspects or traits of the animals which could facilitate their journey between worlds. Uh, it's for this reason that we see many ancient Adena mound builder burials with uh, parts of wolves, panthers, birds, and bears buried with them. Uh, during the era of the Hopewell mound builders, uh, the bear became even more important and They've found figure, a figurine at the Newark Earthworks depicting a, a priest or shaman wearing the skin of a bear, holding a severed human head. So the concept of shape-shifting became bound up with every form of Native American perspective of the supernatural. Even people who were considered witches and wizards in the historic period were believed to have the power to shape-shift. Uh, is the idea of a curse part of Native American cosmology? In other words, could a cursed person uh, be uh, destined to sort of walk the earth as a shapeshifter? Well, there are people who become cursed uh, in the cosmology. For example, uh, the Algonquian lore of the Wendigo is a, is a perfect example. There are several different Algonquian traditions uh, that described the origin of the Wendigo as a person who began to practice cannibalism and was gradually transformed into the Wendigo. Interestingly enough, there are traditions of uh, black magicians who dealt with the great horned serpent being transformed into a Wendigo as punishment for practicing bad medicine. Uh, the great serpent itself granted the ability to shapeshifters, they're also, his followers, uh, are also known to have assumed human form, beings from the underworld, and married human women in order to reproduce with them and create more of their own kind. Uh, historically, the tales of the great serpent from the Great Lakes tell us that uh, individuals had their infants stolen by the great serpents, and people were kidnapped and taken underwater. In some instances, black magicians were required to sacrifice their children or entire families to the underworld serpents in exchange for powerful magic and medicine. So the lore on the subject is very extensive. Tell me more about the Wendigo. What, what did they look like, supposedly? Well, that it actually varies uh, from one tradition to the next, you know. Each tribe had its own storytellers. The Wendigo that interests me, though, the most is that uh, there are some forms of the Wendigo in the Northeast that's depicted as a large, white, hairy being. Uh, when we see something, a spirit being or a Manitou in Native American cosmology depicted as white, that usually points to the far north. There's a general belief that in the far northern part of the world, north of the Great Lakes, north of America, there's a mythical place where powerful giants and Manitou still live. 
And uh, when a spirit being or Manitou is depicted in white, even if it's uh, engraved in shell that's white, that it represents uh, some of those beings that still live in the far north. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.